0: in their position. This is True Spies.
1: An assassination operation takes no less than four to five people. Usually it's five to six people. So we believe there's at least three others that are out there.
0: Episode 16, N is for Novichok. Meet Christo Grozev, not a spy, but a spy hunter. Not the trilby hat and turned up collar sword. No long evenings on lonely street corners, but rather days and nights in the depths of the internet. You might call Christo a data detective. In 2018, two men appeared on his radar. They looked innocent enough. To the casual eye, they were simply tourists in jeans and trainers and padded jackets waiting at the ticket barrier of a provincial British railway station. But the British police had just revealed them to be Russian agents and prime suspects in an audacious assassination attempt.
1: Committing a crime like this in the United Kingdom is probably the worst idea um, on earth because it's completely, well, dotted and littered with security cameras.
0: Christo and his colleagues wanted to know who they really were.
1: We had the advantage of having spent several years following exactly the type of people that were behind this operation.
0: This is the story of how Christo revealed the true identities of the two hapless tourists, and so much more. It all begins in Salisbury. Salisbury is a small city in the south of England It's best known for its medieval cathedral. Perhaps you know the pictures by the landscape artist John Constable, with that tall, slender spire in the background. The cathedral holds one of only four surviving copies of the Magna Carta, a document of great historical importance. So there are plenty of tourists. But one Sunday afternoon, in March 2018, passers-by noticed two people, a man in his 60s, and a younger woman slumped on a bench in the city center, clearly in some distress. The emergency services were called and they were ferried to hospital. It didn't take long for disturbing facts to emerge. The man was identified as Sergei Skripal. Mr. Skripal, it seemed, was a former Russian spy. The younger woman was his daughter. They had both been poisoned and by poisoned i don't mean something cozy and agatha christie the poison they found in salisbury was a nerve agent the kind of thing governments develop in chemical weapons labs the british prime minister theresa may knew exactly where to look for the culprits
2: it is now clear that mr scripal and his daughter were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent of a type developed by Russia.
0: Speaking in Parliament little more than a week after the attack, she had no hesitation in pointing the finger.
2: Either this was a direct act by the Russian state against our country, or the Russian government lost control of its potentially catastrophically damaging nerve agent and allowed it to get into the hands of others.
0: And the nerve agent had a name Novichok. Identified, the Prime Minister said, ...by experts at Britain's Defence Science Laboratory at Porton Down. Mrs May added something else. The full significance of which emerged only later.
2: It was an indiscriminate and reckless act against the United Kingdom... ...putting the lives of innocent civilians at risk.
0: It took time for the extent of the risks to emerge. Nearly four months. And then, another disturbing report... ...from the small town of Amesbury... A few miles north of Salisbury, a couple in their 40s had been found unconscious in their flat, and a chilling announcement from counter terrorism police. This couple, too, had been exposed to Novichok, probably by accident. In the case of the Skripals, the Novichok appeared to have been applied to the handle of their front door. Miraculously, both of them survived. In this case, Charlie Rowley. A 45 year old had picked up a discarded perfume bottle that seemed to have contained the deadly substance. Charlie Rowley, too, survived. His 44 year old partner, Dawn Sturgis, did not. She died on July the 8th. The police were now conducting a murder inquiry. Two months later, on September the 5th, the Prime Minister was back on her feet in Parliament.
2: I would like to update the House on the investigation into the attempted murder of Sergei and Yulia Skripal and the subsequent poisoning of Dawn Sturgis and Charlie Rowley earlier this year.
0: The police had identified two suspects, two Russian nationals travelling on Russian passports. They had tracked their arrival at Gatwick Airport on the afternoon of Friday, March the 2nd, and followed their trail to a hotel in East London. They discovered that the two men had made two return trips to Salisbury by train, the first on the Saturday, the second the following day. They were in Salisbury for roughly two hours on Sunday, the 4th of March, and left in the early afternoon. The Scree Pals were found collapsed on their park bench at around 4.15 that same day. And there were images captured from CCTV, two men Perhaps in their early 40s, round faces and short hair, one with a goatee beard. Here they are arriving at Gatwick Airport, and then standing at the ticket barrier at Salisbury Station. The same men walking through the city in waterproof jackets, one in a woolly hat, the other a baseball cap, and then going back through passport control at Heathrow Airport for an evening flight to Moscow. There were also images of a perfume bottle Charlie Rowley had found in Salisbury, It, the police said, had contained the fatal dose of Novichok that killed Dawn Sturgis. And there were names for the two Russians. Vryslam Peshirov and Alexander Petrov. But no one thought that these were their real names. The police and the Prime Minister had little doubt who they worked for.
2: I can today tell the House that based on a body of intelligence, the government has concluded... ...that the two individuals named by the police and CPS... ...are officers from the Russian Military Intelligence Service... ...also known as the GRU.
0: Sergei Skripal had himself worked for the GRU. He'd been recruited by military intelligence... ...after serving as a paratrooper in Afghanistan. By the mid-1990s, he'd been posted to Spain... And it's there that he's said to have been recruited by British intelligence as a double agent. He carried on working for the British after he'd gone back to Moscow, where eventually his cover was blown and he was arrested very publicly in December 2004. You'll find footage of this online. He's held in what appears to be some kind of headlock before being led in handcuffs to a van. Filming this was a deliberate humiliation, Although he received a 13-year prison sentence, he was released as part of a spy swap in 2010. But perhaps Russia never forgives and never forgets. There's been much speculation that Skripal's treachery was the motive for the attack and a warning to others tempted to follow a similar path. The family moved to Britain, but Skripal's wife died of cancer in 2012, and Yulia, his daughter, moved back to Russia in 2014. And then Sasha, Sergei's son, died suddenly on a weekend visit to St. Petersburg. There were rumors that he was an alcoholic, but there is much about his death that isn't known. By 2017, Sergei Skripal was alone in Salisbury, not a name on Kristo Grozev's radar. But once the British Prime Minister had denounced the suspects as members of the GRU, he got to work.
1: Fortunately, we had experience with investigating Russian military intelligence.
0: Let me tell you a bit more about Christo, our spy hunter, and the organization he works for, because the story I'm telling you today is really their story. The story of how a group of dedicated digital detectives uncovered the real identities of Ruslan Bashirov and Alexander Petrov, how they revealed that a third Russian agent had traveled to London that same weekend, and how they exposed a much wider circle of secret agents connected to the Salisbury case.
1: We're not linked to any intelligence service, we don't get tips, we don't get clues, we're not even an old-fashioned journalist journalist organization, a media organization that has its network of sources that leak. So all we can do is wait for some sort of shred of evidence to appear publicly and then we take it from there.
0: Perhaps you've heard of Bellingcat. It describes itself as an independent international collective of researchers, investigators and citizen journalists. Registered in the Netherlands, but with staff and contributors in more than 20 countries, it relies on publicly available sources, what's known in the trade as open source intelligence, to reveal hidden truths. In short, Bellingcat's researchers crunch a lot of data. And Christo Grozev, you might say, is data cruncher in chief. Well, certainly when it comes to Russia.
1: Russia is a very uh, online society and it's a very corrupt society as well. The two of these things together result in a lot of data being traded, people working for the FSB or for uh, law enforcement.
0: The FSB is another of Russia's security agencies.
1: They tend to download copies of their passport databases there on their office computers, and then trade them for money with, with head of securities of private companies, for example, or with detective agencies. Sooner or later, such databases leak onto the open market. So we had started gathering such databases and by by 2018, by the time we started looking at the Scripple case, we had already a collection of more than 500 regional databases containing passport data, uh, residential data, car ownership data, telephone number data. All of these allowed us to quite quickly figure out the plan on how to look for these two gentlemen and to figure out whether they're real or not.
0: The one other thing you need to know about Bellingcat They like working with other people.
1: We typically work with a Russian partner, uh, The Insider. But in this particular case, the interest in the topic was so great that a lot of other international and Russian organizations were focusing on it at the same time. So it became almost like a global collaboration, journalistic collaboration. A very active partner in this uh, collaboration was Fontanka, a St. Petersburg media outlet, which is also quite independent. But they were not the only ones. Novaya Gazeta was another Russian media organization that also contributed.
0: So, imagine the situation. You've been presented with a couple of names and some fuzzy CCTV images, and now you're going to work out A, whether these people are who they say they are, and B, if they're not, who
1: they really are
0: and you're pretty sure they're Russian spies, what would you do? Where would you start?
1: We already had a pretty good idea that these are fake personalities, but in order to confirm that for sure, we needed to have more than just the first and last name. We needed their birth date, and we needed the patronymic.
0: The patronymic is the middle name that every Russian has. It derives from your father's name. If you're a man, your patronymic ends in vich. So If your father's name was Ivan, your patronymic would be Ivanovich.
1: In order for a person to be positively identified, you need the three names, the the first, middle and last name. So we needed to get that before we can move our investigation further.
0: If you know about these things, you will know that passenger manifests from international flights are full of useful data. So step one for the Bellingcat detectives was to get hold of the manifest from the flight that had brought the two men from Moscow to London. How on earth do you do that?
1: We had developed a network of trusted whistleblowers in different travel agencies, in different uh, airlines in Russia, who would, um, late at night, after their working hours, agree to sometimes, on uh, limited occasions, and once they were convinced that we were looking for a solution to a crime and not just poking around people's data, they would agree to share limited data on these persons. I think on that particular day, there were six flights. And we had to make an educated guess as to which flights we should um, try to get hold of. Because each attempt to get hold of passenger manifests in Russia would involve a whistleblower working for one of the travel agencies with access to booking data or at one of the airline companies, risking their job and probably their their freedom uh, to help us. And we, it seems that we made a pretty good guess because the first flight manifest we got for uh, one of the morning flights on the 2nd of March ended up with two familiar names, Boshirov and Petrov.
0: As I said, passenger manifests are full of useful data. They show, for example, a passenger's date of birth, and they also show their passport number, Innocent enough, you might think. But Bashirov and Petrov's passport numbers were very revealing.
1: Lo and behold, we saw that the two passport numbers were so close to each other that when you count them, you see that only two passports had been issued between the one and the other, which means that they were issued literally on the same day, but more like the same second or the same minute.
0: Two people on the same flight with almost identical passport numbers that's pretty suspicious and, surprisingly, amateurish. But Christo wanted to be sure. So he dug back through his files from a previous investigation. A coup attempt in 2016 in the former Yugoslav Republic of Montenegro. Organized, Belenkat believed, by agents from Russian military intelligence, the GRU. And there, he found the fake identities of two GRU officers along with their passport details. And guess what?
1: And we looked at the passport numbers in those fake identities. And they were literally different by five or six numbers from the two numbers of Pushirov and Petrov. At that point, I was absolutely sure. We were all absolutely sure that we're talking about the same unit from the same intelligence service, which must be the GRU.
0: To be clear, What Christo is saying is that not only did this remove any doubt he may have had that Bashirov and Petrov were members of the GRU, this grouping of passport numbers also showed him that the two men were members of a much smaller, clandestine group within the GRU. You'll be hearing much more about them. It is at this point in the story that none other than the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, himself a former intelligence officer, don't forget, steps in. In a televised interview, he dismisses out of hand the suggestion that Bashirov and Petrov were spies. We know who they are. They are civilians. And he suggests that it would be a good idea for the two men to make themselves available to the media.
1: Then literally the next day, I was flying back to my hometown, and I saw that there was an interview scheduled with uh, the two suspects that was just about to launch. So I I broke all the rules of airline flying and I switched on. Uh, Well, I I started listening and watching to the interview on my phone with headphones. I just couldn't believe my ears. I had to actually ask the stewardess to to wait a little bit more before the boarding because I, I wanted to listen to the end of it.
0: Perhaps you've seen this interview. Go online and check it out if you haven't. Two very subdued individuals protesting their innocence. Yes, it's us. You can see on those pictures published by the British police. Yes, those are our real names, Bashirov and Petrov. No, we've never heard of the Screples. Why did we go to Salisbury? Because our friends have been telling us about this wonderful city and the cathedral with its famous 123-metre spire. Why did we go twice? Well, the weather was so bad on the first day that it was impossible to see the sights. So we had to go back to London. We did a bit of shopping on Oxford Street. And no, 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 we don't work for the GRU. The interview led Christo briefly to doubt all his instincts.
1: I thought, maybe we're wrong. This cannot be people who are secret services who would agree to shop on television and talk lies that can be double-checked and and validated relatively easily. So actually, this was the moment where um, it became almost a full-time job for me because I thought this is either a big mistake by the Brits, by us, or it's the most blatant lie of any government that I've seen, and we need to find out one way or the other.
0: But at the same time, he was confident that Bellingcat could find objective open-source data that would contradict the two men's assertions.
1: For example, they spent a disordinate amount of effort and time in the short trip in trying to get to Salisbury back twice. They explained that by saying that the first day when they went there, it was very slushy and um, they were essentially scared of the snow and they couldn't make it a proper trip. So we looked at the weather forecast, we looked at videos and and, uh, Twitter posts from that day, from the time that they were in uh, Salisbury. And we saw that, yeah, there was a little bit of snow, a little bit of slush, but nothing that a Russian can not handle. I mean, Russia is permafrost half of the year. Now, this probably was the most implausible statement they made in the, in the whole interview. The
0: interview had been screened by RT, Russia Today, a channel notable for its faithful reflection of the view from the Kremlin. Ironically, the interview made Bellingcat's search for the suspect's real identities significantly easier.
1: In the beginning, we were starting our investigation based on two blurry photographs from a British press release and also from scans of scans of passport photos we got from the passenger manifest. This gave us the opportunity to get really high quality. Russia Today is a very well-funded television station, so it has the best cameras and it streams in super high UHD quality, so we were able to get dozens and dozens of high-definition facial shots that gave us the opportunity to later do reverse face search and comparison to other photographs we found in passport databases. Okay, passport
0: databases. These form a crucial part of the investigation. So let's take a minute to understand exactly what they are and what information they contain.
1: Russia, which is... um, A country that came out of the Soviet Union, which was an extremely centralized and bureaucratic society, has kept a lot of that bureaucracy. There's a lot of documentary file data on every person who was born there. one such mandatory piece of data is the passport file.
0: Which is very handy if you're a data detective. Every Russian over the age of 14 has to have an ID document, known as an internal passport. That means there's an official file on every Russian adult that contains details of every passport ever issued, both internal and external.
1: And it would include date of issue, passport number, and a screenshot of the, or a face shot of the photograph that was used in that passport, along with a form that you filled in to get that passport from the authorities. In addition, the file would contain a listing of all travel passports, international passports, that have been issued to that person
0: a Soviet legacy that's a digital-era goldmine for people like Christo. So, how to get their hands on the passport files of Ruslan Bashirov and Alexander Petrov?
1: In both cases, we were able to use the the help of a whistleblower who had a relative working in one of the agencies in Russia that has access to the central computerized system that have electronic versions of these passport files. And we had found somebody who was willing to access it for us and give us the passport file for the two of them.
0: The first one they got hold of was Alexander Petrovs. They recognized the face straight away. This was the right man. But there was also a lot missing.
1: His first passport entry was in the year 2009. And that makes no sense. I mean, everything preceding that was was blank. There was a reference to a preceding passport that had been used as a reason to give the new passport, and that passport number was issued apparently in St. Petersburg. But when we looked in offline data from St. Petersburg, we found that this passport number didn't exist. So we knew that something was wrong, that this is a file most likely created from scratch in 2009, based on a newly invented identity.
0: Because, remember, Every Russian citizen has to have an internal passport from the age of 14. So, if Petrov's first passport had been issued only in 2009, that would make him 23 in 2018. One look at his TV interview was enough to know this clearly wasn't the case.
1: There were other clues that we found in the second section of this passport file, which contains the applications um, for a passport that I mentioned earlier. In this particular case, the application, which typically should be filled in by the passport holder, was blank, completely blank. And at the top, there was a stamp with the letters CC or SS in Russian, which in Russian can be deciphered as top secret, so sekretna, and a handwritten note which said, do not yield information. Now, all of this already then gave us the strong, strong conviction indication that this is a Secret Service operative, this is a non-existent person, and somebody had written a note, if anybody looks for information for this person, do not provide any information.
0: Okay, so what have you got? A passport file for a man probably in his 40s with no official record before 2009. A blank passport application form... A stamp that appears to mean top secret. And a handwritten note saying, Don't give out any information about this person. And a gaping hole. No reference to the passport which Petrov used to fly to London on March the 2nd. Oh, and you've got something else. On a stamp at the top of the blank application form, there is a seven-digit number. Which had Christo scratching his head. But remember, Bell and Cat weren't the only people digging into the shady background of Alexander Petrov.
1: Several other media outlets, including Novaya Gazeta, figured out that that might actually be a telephone number. And they just picked up a telephone and dialed it. And somebody answered from the Ministry of Defense. And the person said, Who gave you this number? And then he hung up when he figured out that it was a journalist calling.
0: So, the seven-digit number on Petrov's blank application form led straight to the heart of the beast, although the beast then tried to cover its tracks.
1: Other journalists called, they got the answer, oh no, you're wrong, this is the flea market. And then by the time we started calling the number, then it was disconnected and nobody answered the phone anymore.
0: So, there was little doubt in Christo's mind that Alexander Petrov, or a man who went by that name, was GRU. He was a Russian military intelligence agent. But what about the second man, Ruslan Bashirov?
1: The moment we disclosed our method in this initial publication on Petrov, the next day, before we could even do the same exercise for Bashirov, Russian media, including Fontanka, they replicated our approach and they published screenshots of Boshirov's passport file which contained exactly the same gaps and exactly the same number and exactly the same uh, stamp do not yield information. So at this point we already knew for sure that both of them are fake identities, both of them have a linkage to the GRU and the big question remained who are they really?
0: So you've got two names which you're sure are fake. You've got photos to match faces to the names And you know that they work in military intelligence. Now you've got to find out who they really are. What would you do next? What Christo did next was that he got creative. Where, he wondered, would Russians send people to learn how to be spies?
1: We got a consistent answer from the two sources we approached, which was well, by the end of the nineties, the whole system of training spies have kind of collapsed in Russia, and we, we didn't really have a good training operation training ground. But there were a couple of schools-only institutes, as they call them, that prepared elite spies with good training of foreign languages and a grasp of understanding how the West works, and one of them was the Far Eastern Military Institute in Habarovsk.
0: Habarovsk, by the way, is about as far east as you can go in Russia, thousands of miles from Moscow. An eight-hour flight. And this is where Christo started looking. Digitally,
1: of course. We actually spent a few nights looking at sort of Facebook photographs of its graduates, looking for a glimpse of a younger version of Bushirov to hopefully see him there. And we did that with our friends from The Insider. Um, We had allocated yearbook photos by year. So we spent a good three nights going through thousands of different photographs, also photographs posted on the social media groups of the school graduates and alumni.
0: This painstaking digital legwork eventually bore fruit. A picture of a man bearing a resemblance to Bashirov, obviously on military assignment in a war zone.
1: It was against the background of a mountain in um, a place that looked like the Caucasus. And it was a group of five or six um, people in military attire. And we were told that this is most likely Chechnya, one of the mountains in Chechnya, where there had been two long-running wars. And the time of the photograph was given to us as somewhere between 2001 and 2004.
0: It was a start. They could narrow their search. Someone who had graduated from the military academy in Habarovsk, who had then served in Chechnya,
1: And we found, uh, by sheer luck, a reference in a military magazine to a hero of Russia who had graduated the Far Eastern Military Institute, who had fought on three assignments three different times in Chechnya, was wounded there, and was one of the sort of one of the graduates that the Institute was most proud of.
0: Being a hero of Russia is a big deal, it's the highest award available to any Russian citizen conferred by the president himself. More importantly for Bellingcat, this particular hero of Russia had a name. Anatoly Chepiga. Could this be their
1: man? The hardest evidence we were hoping to get was a copy of a passport file under the name of Anatoly Chepiga that would have the identical photograph that we had seen in the passport file of Bushirov.
0: So, back to the whistleblower, back to the person who had given them the file of the fake identity, Ruslan Bashirov. But no, so near and yet so far. The whistleblower didn't want to play ball.
1: By this time, the uh, story had become central news all over the world, including in Russia, so this whistleblower actually felt threatened, and and we we agreed that it's not a good idea for, for him or her to do this, so we had to find somebody else.
0: It took a few more days to find that someone. It was worth the wait. This was the moment when all of that trawling through thousands of pictures finally paid off.
1: We got a file in the name of Anatoly Chepiga and it had a photograph of a younger version of the person we had seen in the Russia Today interview. There he was.
0: The man so keen to see the famous Salisbury Cathedral spire but who'd been defeated by the snow. There was further confirmation of Chapiga's identity, if any were now needed, in the form of a video someone had shot inside the Habarovsk Academy, where a wall of photographs celebrates graduates who later became heroes of Russia.
1: And in the last column, we saw a face that we enhanced a little bit to get a better picture, and it looked definitively like a current version, of uh, a very fresh version of the same person that we had seen in Russia today. So we had two faces, two photographs, one from the passport file, one from the video of uh, the Wall of Fame, and both of them gave us a match. It was a big moment. Obviously, there was huge euphoria with us having identified a really uh, secret, deep-covered Russian officer of the military intelligence.
0: But now they had to identify the second man. And that turned out to be harder than they thought. For one thing, there are an awful lot of Alexander Petrovs in Russia, tens of thousands. So how to narrow it down? Well, do you remember Montenegro? That failed attempt to topple the government in 2016, organized by agents of the GRU? Christo suddenly had a brainwave. One of the agents Belencat had unmasked had had a fake identity that wasn't very different from his real name.
1: So they would use, in those cases, the first name and the patronymic of the real person. They would maintain the birth date, and they would only change typically the last name.
0: And remember, they already had the passport file in the name of Alexander Yevgenovich Petrov, the one that was missing so much information. But it did contain a date of birth. Not necessarily an accurate one, but a starting point nonetheless. And, crucially, there was reference to a previous passport having been issued in St. Petersburg.
1: So why not start there? When we looked in the St. Petersburg residential database, the historical database of people residing in St. Petersburg, we looked for a combination of the name Alexander, the middle name Yevgenievich, which belonged to Petrov and the birth date that belonged to Petrov. But having lived in St. Petersburg, and we found only one person that matched these criteria, and that person was named Alexander Yevgenovich Mishkin.
0: So, could Alexander Yevgenovich Petrov actually be Alexander Yevgenovich Mishkin? There were further clues that made this look likely.
1: Then we looked at the address that he was registered at, and we found out to be an address that was just across the street from the military medical academy of Russia, the premier military academy, which is based in St. Petersburg, uh, for medical doctors. And we found that this address was essentially a dorm uh, that was used by students in that military academy. So at that point, we had a pretty good hypothesis that this may be our guy. Moreover, that if it is our guy, then we have a new breaking story. One of the two people who had gone out to try to poison Skripal and his daughter was not only a jury officer, he was a medical doctor who was part of a team. That on one hand would have been shocking, but on the other hand would, would actually make sense.
0: Now they have to prove the hypothesis. More digital shoe leather.
1: Then we approached uh, a lot of the uh, known graduates of the university, um, of the medical academy, on social media. This was done by our um, friends from The Insider. Uh, We sent more than 100 direct messages to people to ask them if they knew this face. We showed them a photograph of Petrov. Most of them very quickly responded that, no, we don't know. We've never seen this person. But then, bingo. I got an anonymous email a couple of days later saying, I know I couldn't say anything when I was approached on social media because VK and OK are monitored by the FSB. But I want to tell you that, yes, I know this guy. He was one class above me. His name is Mishkin. And yes, he's the same guy that we saw on television last week.
0: Petrov is definitely Mishkin. So what's the next step? Well, you should be getting used to the routine by now. A photograph. A photograph that matches Petrov to Mishkin. So it's back to those passport files, the one that contained data on every Russian citizen going back to the age of 14. But there's a problem now. Bellingcat has already exposed Anatoly-Chapiga and it's becoming too risky for whistleblowers to go into online databases. They might trigger an alert. So Christo needs to find a database that has already been downloaded.
1: One such source was a car insurance officer with access to an offline database of car sales, car registrations, car insurances. He was kind enough to share with us a copy of the driver's license and of the actual passport scan that had been left by Mishkin when he had been buying a car. And that passport showed his face. That was exactly the same face that we had seen on the Rush Today interview and on the Petrov file. So that's how we confirmed for sure that it's uh, the same person, that Mishkin doctor medical doctor and jury officer Alexander Mishkin is in fact the second suspect in the Salisbury case.
0: When Bellingcat had identified the first man as Anatoly Topiga, they had sent a local reporter to the place he grew up to find out if anyone there remembered him. They did the same in the case of Alexander Mishkin. He came from a small village in Siberia.
1: At about 11.30 that evening, we got a message from our guy saying, you won't believe it. I can't send you more data now, so you'll hear from me when I'm out of here. But I was able to talk to his neighbors. He's a hero of Russia as well. And that was a bombshell. I mean, I couldn't sleep that night.
0: The next day, Christo
1: heard the whole story. Apparently, his grandmother had been a local medical worker, And she always said to his neighbors that I want my grandson to become a doctor. And she took care of him because his parents had lived in a nearby town uh, toiling away at some factory. So he was very close to his grandmother. And she had shared with the neighbors a photograph of him handshaking the Russian president and getting the Hero of Russia Award sometime in late 2014, early 2015. She would never let any of the neighbors touch that photograph, so she would only show it from her hands. But it was one of the biggest achievements of her life, and she was so proud of it. Unfortunately, by the time our reporter was there, the grandmother had been whisked away by security services because they knew that we were coming. They had seen that reporters came to Chapiga's birthplace, and they knew that we would be coming to Mishkin's place soon, so she was out of there. But this story um, confirmed once again that we have two heroes of Russia, highly decorated people, who had been entrusted with this mission to go and try to poison Sergei Skripal.
0: It's a good story, right? Well, it's about to get even better. Back in September 2018, the British Counter-Terrorism Police had published pictures of two men. But Bellingcat had now established that there was a third GRU man in London at the same time. So let's just rewind briefly. We've already heard about the failed coup attempt mounted by GRU officers in Montenegro in 2016. And we've heard that the agents who took part in that had passports whose numbers were very close to those of the fake passports held by the Salisbury suspects, this had led Christo and his colleagues to the idea that there was a small elite unit of such men who travelled under false identities to carry out murky operations on behalf of the GRU. And remember, the flight that brought Anatoly Chepiga and Alexander Petrov to London on March second was only one of several. So was there someone else with a similar passport number aboard one of the others? Well... Yes, there was a man with the passport in the name of Sergei Vyacheslavovich Fedotov. A bit of digging, and Bellingcat got hold of a Russian telephone number issued in this name.
1: We had managed to get the metadata for that telephone number, and we had noticed that it was not typically turned on all the time in Russia. It was only turned on a couple of days or a week before an international trip that was used during the trip and was turned off a couple of days after returning back to Russia. This would be consistent with the operation of a a second identity, which is only activated when needed and uh, on international trips.
0: The digital sleuths were able to track the movement of this phone, not only in Russia in the week before Fedotov traveled, but also during the two days he spent in London. They'd got hold of the phone's metadata records from a whistleblower at one of Russia's mobile phone operators. They were then able to follow his movements based on the phone's connection to various cell
1: towers. And that gave us a very interesting pattern. He had traveled directly from the airport to a hotel in uh, London, near Paddington station. On the way, he had lingered by the Russian embassy for about a couple of minutes. He may have stopped up there, or he may have just uh, Being in the vicinity, we couldn't verify that for sure. Then he left um, half a day before the others, um, around 3 p.m. on the 4th.
0: So, Sergei Vidotov, the third man, arrived in London on Friday the 2nd of March and left on Sunday the 4th, exactly as the other two
1: did, albeit on different flights. But Vidotov didn't go to Salisbury. He was holed up for most of the time in his hotel room, making continuous calls and uh, online communication back to numbers in Moscow. Our assumption at that point was that he was getting instructions, feeding back status reports to Moscow, to his superiors, and interacting with the two officers who were taking the trip to Salisbury and back to, uh, to London, but communicating with them with a secure messenger... Whereas some of the phone calls to back to Moscow were, um, were on regular phone line, and those were the ones we could track.
0: As far as Christo could tell from the telephone data, Vodotov left his hotel only once that weekend, on the Saturday morning.
1: And his phone registered um, at a cell tower near Oxford Circus. But then it moved, um, and between noon and 1.30, it was connected several times near the embankment on the west bank of the Thames. So it's interesting that according to what we know about Chipigas and Mishkin's movements from um, British police, they arrived from their hotel to Waterloo Station at approximately 11.45. Their train to Salisbury was more than an hour later at 12.50. Waterloo Station is about 10 minutes walk, if I remember, from the embankment, and therefore they would have had enough time to meet in person, whether to exchange some last-minute instructions or or pass on an object uh, from one to the other. But in any case, um, the area between the embankment and the Waterloo station would have been a convenient place for such a brush-off meeting.
0: A brush-off is a classic piece of tradecraft, where something is handed over surreptitiously, but often in public. Could this have been where the perfume bottle changed hands? Vodotov's little excursion is an intriguing detail, not least because he appears to have been near Oxford Street. You'll recall that Chepiga and Petrov had said, in their interview on Russia Today that they'd been shopping
1: on Oxford Street. If they had met there and had been captured on camera, they probably wanted to create an alibi for why they were there. And probably that's why they mentioned the Oxford Street um, so visibly in the interview.
0: Fedotov, according to the passenger manifest of his flight, had travelled at very short notice. He'd bought his ticket only the night before he flew, which, incidentally, is also true for Chapiga and Mishkin. A fact that further undermines, you might think, the story of a long-standing desire to observe the wonders of Salisbury Cathedral. Yulia, Skripal, as we've heard, didn't live in the UK any longer. She had flown in on March the 3rd to visit her father. Could this provide a clue as to why the attack took place when it did? Did the agents decide to travel when they did on discovering that Yulia was flying to the UK? Was she a target? rather than an innocent bystander? Questions, sadly, that we can't answer here. But back to Fedotov. There were several indications that he wasn't simply a member of the team, but the man in charge. For a start, he was older than the other two.
1: Other than that, it was significant that he was not tasked with the actual hands-on operation. He was in a coordinating function, in a much safer environment, holed up in a hotel. And that, again, um, is a symptom of either a higher uh, function in the hierarchy or more of a supporting team. But given that, uh, that he was uh, communicating back and forth all the time and did apparently meet with them, we, th- we think at least one senior member is always present in such operations from uh, our understanding of how they work. And our assumption was that it's uh, the senior most. So who was Fedotov?
0: Well, we know the procedure by now. Find the passport file and it will shed its secrets. The problem for Christo by now was the Russian authorities were wise to Belenkats' methods.
1: By the time we started looking for his real identity, the uh, Russian uh, security services had done everything possible to purge all data. Not only were they deleting data of, of their officers, both from the GRI and the FSB. But in some cases, they were modifying data, falsifying data, so that we wouldn't find an empty file, but a file that would seem like it belonged to a different person.
0: So they became reliant on databases that had already been leaked, ones from which the Russians would not be able to delete information.
1: We did get a photograph of Sergey Fedotov from a border crossing database of Russia, which um, had... Uh, A whistleblower with access to the border crossing data had kept the last passport photo used by this person when he had crossed to go to the UK. So we had a blurry photograph of Fedotov.
0: But try as they might, they couldn't find a match for this photo. They tried the old trick of finding someone else with the name combination, Sergei Vyacheslavovic, but that was no good. So then, in desperation, they looked for someone with a middle name only, combined with the date of
1: birth. And we found that when we do that exercise, we end up with about 12 people in Moscow who had the middle name Vyacheslavovich and the same birthday as Fedotov. And one of them had a family name, a last name, Sergeyev, which was the first name of Sergey Fedotov. So we thought, hmm, this is interesting. Could this be the guy?
0: So, of course, they now needed his passport file. But this was a dead end.
1: By the time we looked for his passport file, we were told by a whistleblower that this passport file does not exist. There is no such person called Denis Vyacheslavich Sergeyev. Well, by this time we knew that this must be him, because if they had purchased his file, there was no other explanation other than that he's the right guy.
0: A case of an absence of information confirming the existence of information but they still had to track that information down. They got a blurry photo of his driving license from an insurance database, but that wasn't conclusive.
1: What now? Then what really gave us a uh, strong visual evidence that we moved on was an old video documentary we found, which had been shot by the Russian military in-house videographer after a operation in 1998 in the Caucasus, and um, a person who was by that time major uh, with the name Denis Vyacheslavich Sergeyev had uh, been wounded, he had taken on the command after his commander had been killed, and he had essentially taken his uh, unit out of harm's way. We saw this narration in in an excerpt from a book
0: that we found And the book made reference to a film that had been made about this operation by the Russian Ministry of Defense.
1: We spent a few days looking for an old copy of this film. Ultimately, we were able to find the author, the director of this film, who uh, shared with us a copy, and we found an actual on-screen interview with, uh, with Denis Sergeyev, which was in a much better quality than the blurry photograph we had received from the driver's license for his motorcycle.
0: Weeks and weeks of digital digging had finally paid off. They had their man, Sergei Vyacheslavovich Vidotov, who had spent a busy weekend in a Paddington hotel in March 2018, was without doubt Denis Vyacheslavovich Sergeyev, a major general in the GRU. And it seems Sergeyev, as police might say, had previous... As we've heard, Bellingcat was slowly putting together a database of people they thought belonged to this elite group of Russian secret agents. A database based on the similarity of their passport numbers. And they noted that several of these people had been in Bulgaria all at the same time, in early 2015. One of them was Sergeyev. He'd been there twice, in April, and then again in May.
1: But he was not the only one. Two members that had been engaged with the Montenegro coup cool attempt had also visited in days, one day or two days before his trips. Furthermore, um, four other members that we had not identified that were linked to other operations, but could link to this unit because of the fake identities and fake numbers that, uh, that they were traveling on, were also with him.
0: So what had happened in Bulgaria in the spring of 2015? that might've required the attention of a group of Russian agents. Christo began to trawl the internet.
1: And one thing we could find was unsuccessful attempt to poison a Bulgarian arms manufacturer.
0: Yes, you heard that right. An attempt to poison a Bulgarian arms manufacturer. Ring any bells?
1: It had become a cold case without really anybody finding the real reason why this person and his son and the production manager of his mm, arms manufacturing facility in Bulgaria had ended up in hospital after having dinner one evening.
0: The victim's name in this case was Emilian Gabrev. He was the hardest hit of the three.
1: He uh, fell into a coma and uh, uh, they were fighting for his life for more than a week and it took him about three weeks before he could recover, uh, nearly in full. he, He believes he's not fully recovered until today.
0: In early 2019, Bellingcat published the story revealing Fedotov's true identity and his link to Bulgaria. Mr. Gebrev, the arms manufacturer, got in touch.
1: He said, I I think this may be related to my story. And at the time, nobody knew what Novichok is, but now everybody knows, so uh, maybe we should revisit my case. So he immediately approached the Bulgarian prosecution and uh, law enforcement and said, I want my case reopened. I wanted to look at the hypothesis of Novichok being, having been used on me.
0: The Bulgarian authorities obliged.
1: We shared all the data we had gathered with uh, Bulgarian law enforcement and with Mr. Gebrev himself. And further to the original overlap of which we knew, based on open source data, what we didn't know was that the second trip by Sergeyev in May, late May, coincided with another relapse of Mr. Gebrev. Um, where he felt he was poisoned again, and he went back to hospital. So it appears, it would appear that um, after the first unsuccessful attempt, they may have come back to try to poison him again, because he ended up in hospital. We've seen the, the records. At this point,
0: no one has been able to confirm that Mr. Gabrev was poisoned with Novichok. But there is evidence to suggest a modus operandi similar to Salisbury. In this case, it seems whatever the substance was, it was applied to the door handle of Mr. Gabrev's car, which was parked in an underground garage. The Bulgarian prosecutor has released CCTV footage of a man wandering around the garage the day Mr. Gabrev fell ill. And Bellingcat's investigations show Sergeyev, travelling under the alias of Fedotov, had stayed with his colleagues in a hotel nearby. They had, Belenkat says, asked for rooms with a view of the garage entrance. Bulgarian prosecutors have now charged three men with the attempted murder of Mr. Gabrev. One of them is Denis Vyacheslavovich Sergeyev. But he has not been charged in connection with the attacks on the Skripals. So are there perhaps more people yet to be revealed with a role in the Salisbury case too? Christo Grozev is certain
1: of it. We are positive we haven't discovered all of the members of this operation. Uh, Why do we think so? An assassination operation takes no less than four to five people, usually it's five to six people that travel in uh, in a staggered fashion. Uh, they, They travel consecutively in order to provide intelligence that is long-term, that is not just one-day intelligence. They need to know the pattern of the person, they need to know the way of movement, and, uh, and it doesn't happen with a single trip. So we believe there is at least three others that are out there that we haven't yet identified.
0: Christo and Bellingcat have shoved a significant spanner in the works of Russian military intelligence. The agents they've identified may never be brought to book, But their globe-trotting days, you'd think, are over. They risk arrest, trial, and serious jail time if they ever again set foot outside Russia. The secret unit may have left one fingerprint too many. I'm Vanessa Kirby. Join us next week for another Brush with True Spies. We all have valuable spy skills, and our experts are here to help you discover yours. Get an authentic assessment of your spy skills, created by a former head of training at British Intelligence, for free now at spyscape.com.